This morning, before we uh, dive into our passage, we just want to take some time to pray, especially for the victims of the families from the shooting in Charleston that took place this past week on Wednesday night in Charleston, South Carolina. A white young man walked into an African-American church where they were having a Bible study. Uh, His express purpose uh, was to start a race war, and he killed nine people at that Bible study. So we want to pray for the victims, for the families of those victims. We want to pray for our nation in the face of such a terrible tragedy. So please join me in praying. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are at such a loss to try to put into words how terrible uh, this event was. And Lord, how difficult it is to see this happen Uh, So, Lord, we we ask and and pray that you would comfort the families of those victims. God, we pray that you would give them friends and a community who can surround them and help them to mourn and to, uh, Lord, overcome this tragedy. Lord, we pray for our nation. Lord, we pray that you would do something to bring an end to this kind of thing. Lord, we ask that you would bring an end to racism in our country. Lord, we ask for wisdom for our leaders and for us as a church. Lord, help us to know what we can do to contribute to that, to, Lord, to end racism and end this kind of thing in our country. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Rocky Mountain National Park is located in north-central Colorado. It covers over 400 square miles, which is about average for a national park, but it's still about double the size of Chicago, so there's plenty of space there for backpackers and people going hiking to get away from civilization. Uh, Lawrence Gonzalez, in his book, Deep Survival, uh, writes about one of those backpackers, Ken Killup, who set off in August of 1998 with a friend. They wanted to hike through the park, specifically down the Continental Divide. They wanted to hike to a 13,000-foot peak and continue on to a place called Rock Lake where they were going to do some fishing. Their plan was to only be gone for three days. Both men were experienced firefighters. Both lived in Colorado. Both were experienced outdoorsmen. And Killip himself had actually gone through survival training with the military. But very quickly on the first day, the altitude in the pack had already begun to take its toll on Killip. His friend, uh, growing frustrated that his friend... Killup couldn't keep up, had gone ahead, taking with him the only compass. So by 5 p.m. on the first day, Killup had been hiking for 12 hours. He had run out of water earlier in the afternoon, and he actually had just gotten soaked from an afternoon thunderstorm. So it's 5 p.m., and he's trying to figure out how much farther he has to go before he can finally get to Rock Lake. So he sees a nearby peak and decides to hike to the top, expecting to see Rock Lake below him or at least a few other familiar landmarks. And he gets to the top, and he looks down, nothing. No rock lake, no landmarks that he recognizes whatsoever. Now, he was faced with a key decision here. What should he do in light of this confusing data? Well, Killip made the fateful decision, as he would continue to do over the next 24 hours, to keep pressing on. He believed that rock lake had to be right in front of him, and so he believed he just needed to keep going forward. But late on the second day, growing hypothermic and increasingly panicked, Killup 
now had the sickening realization that his was a life or death struggle. He was becoming claustrophobic and even experiencing vertigo, even though he was in a national park. Now, psychologists and survival experts call what Killip was experiencing Woods shock. This is the fear of um, associated with complete loss of spatial orientation. So when a person no longer knows their location in relation to something else, they experience this kind of Woods shock. They begin to feel overwhelmed. Uh, they no longer are thinking rationally, but they're motivated by fear and, uh, and the emotional goal of reaching their destination. For Killip, that was Rock Lake and the shelter that it would provide. Someone noted that for someone like Killip, who was experiencing wood shock, he would no longer think rationally. And people on the outside, or even Killip himself later, would look back and realize that he should have made some different decisions during that time. But the shock of being completely lost in the wilderness had overcome him. For Killip, it nearly killed him. But thankfully, he was rescued five days later. But in that time, he had lost 30 pounds and had injured his knees so badly it would require two separate surgeries. Something similar to Wood's shock can happen to anyone who becomes disoriented in life. Even wise, experienced people can suddenly find themselves confused as to what direction their life is going. In fact, I would guess most of us here have experienced some kind of Wood's shock in our own lives. Perhaps you've suddenly realized that You don't really like your job and you feel trapped there. Perhaps you've been betrayed by someone in your own family, somebody that you've put a lot of trust in and and you've really built your life upon, and now you're faced with the dilemma of knowing how to move forward with that person. Or perhaps you just graduated and you realized, even though you haven't told anybody, that you're not so crazy about the degree you just earned. And then what do you do? In these kinds of situations, you're probably no longer considering what's wise or what's dignified. You're just starting to scramble. You're looking for anything that's going to work and help to relieve the pressure that you're under. As we'll see from the story of 1 Samuel, we'll see David starting off in a very similar scrambling mode. He now finds himself in a desperate life-or-death situation and is looking for any solution. Yet through the story, David will begin to get a hint, if only just a hint, that God is working through it all. David will begin to realize that even in our most desperate scrambling, God is still working to deliver us. Even in our most desperate scrambling, God is still working to deliver us. We'll see this dawn on David through the passage, mainly through his encounter with two different foreign kings. The first, when he reaches rock bottom, and the second, when he's beginning to come out of his scrambling and see what God is doing in his life. So let's go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to start with verse 10. Now, just to bring you up to speed and remind those of you who have been walking through 1 Samuel with us, David has come to the realization that King Saul, his former boss and current father-in-law, is trying to kill him. Maybe that's your Father's Day connection to this story. But David's success has caused Saul to be extremely jealous of David to the point of he's actually attempted to kill David himself and he's even sent men after David to try to kill him. David has looked for help from everyone, from his wife, from Samuel the prophet, from his best friend Jonathan, from Ahimelech the priest, all to no avail. And so David reaches the decision where he's got to leave the country. He's got to go outside the borders of Israel and David is on the run. 
In fact, over these 11 verses, if you follow where David goes geographically, he travels from Israel, he goes to the west, he travels back across Israel to the east, and comes back, traveling about 130 miles just in these 11 verses. So David is in a very desperate situation. So let's look at verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Okay, hold on right there. What did he do? He went to Achish, king of Gath. Now, this seems like a terrible idea. Here's why. Gath is enemy territory. Gath is one of the Philistine cities that David and Israel has been fighting over all the previous chapters. And it's not like David doesn't have other options. Later on, we'll see him make the decision to go to a place called Moab, where Israel hasn't been at war with. Um, And so David, for some reason, decides to go into enemy territory here. But there's another reason why Gath was such a bad idea. Gath is Goliath's hometown. Goliath was from Gath. Do you remember that story when David killed the giant? And even though he was still too young to even join the army, he killed this giant. That giant was from Gath. And that story even talks about the fact that after David had cut off Goliath's head, the Israelite army pursued the Philistines all the way back to Gath and beyond it. So it seems like David could not really expect the people of Gath not to remember that story. It had to be a very memorable moment in their history. But yet, there's even one more reason why this was a bad idea. David is actually carrying Goliath's one-of-a-kind sword with him. If you look back at verse 9, David is talking about that sword that he receives just in the previous uh, sermon that we heard from last week. David actually says, there is none like it. Give it to me. So here is David. He's got Goliath's one-of-a-kind sword, and he's bringing it with him back to Goliath's hometown. This seems very irrational. We aren't really sure why exactly David went to Gath. We don't really know what his plan was. Perhaps he believes that he can be a mercenary. That's something he'll do later on. He'll come back to Gath, but he's actually got an army of guys with him that time. So we're not really sure why David goes to Gath. It seems like David is experiencing some kind of woods shock. He's been so disoriented at how things have gone for him in the past, especially with King Saul, that he's not really sure what to do next. He's just scrambling to try to find an answer. So whatever David's plan was when he went to Gath, he soon has to abandon it because of the success he's experienced. Let's look at verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. The Philistines certainly recognize David as king. They've heard the songs that Israel sings about David. Remember, these are the songs that Saul heard. And in fact, they're kind of what set Saul off and even wanting to kill David in the first place because he knew David was sort of surpassing him as the leader of the nation. 
So perhaps Saul was right to feel insecure. Clearly, the Philistines had heard those same songs and interpreted that as David being the king of the country. They're certainly speaking more truth here than they actually know. So David, at this point, realizes the life-or-death situation that he's walked himself into, and he has to do some quick thinking. So what does he do? He decides to disguise himself here by pretending to be insane. Now, I don't know about you, but this seems like strange behavior for someone like David. He's a hero. He's killed Goliath, the giant, even when he was young. He's been in many military battles up to this point. So this seems like a strange move here to pretend to be insane. We don't really tell stories similar to this uh, of national heroes of our country, like George Washington. We don't have any stories of him being captured by the British and suddenly having to drool all over himself in order to escape. It seems like a story that would be embarrassing for a king. But here David is pretending to be insane. Now stop and imagine David's situation. He's faced with incredible irony at this point, and he must have been at a very low place. Here David is. He is the true, literally God-anointed king of Israel. Saul, on the other hand, is the current king of Israel. His time is, is coming to an end, and in fact, he's the one who is insane. He is the madman. But David here finds himself now in enemy territory outside of Israel, definitely not a king, and he's the one who now has to pretend to be insane. I'm sure this must have been really hard for David to come to grips with. God had told and promised him that he would be the true king of Israel. And here he is having to act like the madman while he's on the run from another madman. And in fact, it's the words of that song that have now almost cost him his life twice. Many times in the Bible, we see that when God blesses someone or chooses someone, they don't experience more health, they don't experience more wealth, they don't experience more peace, they don't experience more comfort. In fact, just the opposite. Sometimes when God chooses people, it actually brings more suffering for them. David has done nothing wrong, but because of the success and where God is taking his life, he now is threatened by Saul. So he's scrambling at this point. He's trying anything that will possibly work to try to get him out of this dangerous situation. And that scrambling is something that we all do. It's a very human thing. As I mentioned before, even experienced backpackers can panic and suddenly experience wood shock. In another way, scuba divers actually experience the same thing. Psychologists, as Gonzalez notes in his book, uh, one psychologist decided to study fatal scuba diving accidents and determine what went wrong. They found that many scuba divers actually uh, had drowned while there was still air left in their tank and their regulators weren't even in their mouths at that point. And they discovered that at times when people panic, they feel overcome with the feeling of suffocation. And our natural impulse to try to solve that problem is to remove anything covering our mouth and our nose. And so that's what often happens to scuba divers. If they get panicked and get overcome with that fear, they try to solve the suffocating feeling that they have and they remove their regulators, which is a totally irrational thing and something that even they, if they could, point out later that that was an irrational move. Perhaps you can think back to a time when you were suddenly faced with a desperate situation and you found yourself scrambling. Perhaps you experienced the loss of a loved one. 
that totally just sent you reeling. Again, perhaps you experienced a terrible betrayal by someone who was very close to you. Maybe you have a roommate situation right now that started off good, but at some point there, became, there came to be some tension in that relationship. And now home for you is not home, but it's actually a very tense place to be. And you're not really sure how to get out of that. Or maybe you've lost your job and now you're forced to consider how you can provide for your family. That's something you weren't expecting to think about. Or perhaps your children or someone in your family is dealing with something emotional and, or behaving in a certain way that is just putting a lot of stress on you and you feel like you're suffocating. You can't find a way out from the stress. In these times, you probably often found yourself scrambling, not really considering what's, uh, what's, uh, what's wise or what's dignified, but only what's practical, only what will work and get you out of that situation. It's kind of what David is experiencing here. He's scrambling. But this passage reminds us that God is still at work. Let's take a look at verse 14. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And then going into verse 1 of the next chapter, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. It somehow works. God actually used the scrambling that David did to deliver him from that situation. The king of Gath buys his whole act and sends him away. King David must have realized that God was doing something in this whole thing to bring him through it. Even though he was scrambling, God was still at work. Now, was David wrong to go to Gath? Was he wrong to pretend to be insane here? I think the scripture is merciful that it doesn't really place a judgment on David here. He's not criticized. He's not called to repent. There seems to be the space to allow David, who's in a desperate situation, the, the opportunity or, or the allowance to scramble in the face of desperation. Even in a way that would certainly be embarrassing to a future king. But David is reminded through all his scrambling as he escapes, that God is still at work. So let's take a look at David's encounter with the second king. As David's scrambling comes to an end, he begins to get just a few hints of how God is working in his life. So let's, let's look at uh, 22 verse 1. It says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So God has saved him, and David's now hiding out in a cave. This passage doesn't really record it, but this must have been a reflective time for David. There's a number of psalms that note that David wrote them while he was in a cave, and David was certainly in a cave at other points in his life. But I think we can say we can be relatively certain that psalms 34 and 56 in particular were written by David in this cave during this time after he had just escaped the king of Gath. So God is giving David a little space here to reflect on what he's done. Let's look at verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So we see David now starting to be joined by others who are in distress, others who are perhaps scrambling from dis different situations in their lives. Now, this isn't exactly the description you want to have of mighty warriors. But 
400 men is not something you can just brush away easily. Furthermore, this text makes the point that David is made the captain. He's made the commander over them. It seems like God's destiny for David to be a leader of men can't be stopped even when David is hiding out in a cave somewhere. God is still going to bring people to David for him to lead. So perhaps it's the combination of these two things. God giving him some space to reflect in a cave. God starting to bring more and more people to join him and for David to lead. That David now is starting to get more of a clue of what God is doing. It's not super clear, but it's clear that God is doing something to bring David's scrambling days to an end. At this point, we see David make a very rational decision of what to do with his parents. David's great-grandmother is Ruth. And that's the woman from the book of Ruth in the Bible. And she is from a country to the east of Israel called Moab. Now, at this point, David makes a rational decision of, hey, maybe I should take my parents and they can stay with the king of Moab and maybe some family that we have there while I'm on the run. So let's look at verse 3 as he travels to talk with another foreign king. It says, And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Behold, and depart, and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. What I think is the most interesting about this story is what David says in verse 3 here. He says, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. This is the only time that God's name is explicitly mentioned in this passage, but it's certainly not the first time God has appeared in this passage. David realizes that God has been the one to deliver him from the king of Gath before that. What this statement does point out is that David is beginning to sense that God is doing something, something. It's not really clear exactly what being the leader of a group of bandits is not anywhere close to being the king of an entire nation, the king of Israel. But it had to be a lot closer to where he was earlier in the story when he was pretending to be insane before another king. And many of you who have come out of a scramble can also relate to this. Maybe the intensity of your scramble is behind you now. And that doesn't mean that God has made your future crystal clear. In fact, there's probably a lot of things that you can't say for certain are going to happen. But perhaps what God is doing is he's giving you just enough space to breathe, giving you enough room to reflect on what he's done and hold on through the next unknown. This very much feels like a place where I've been personally. Five years ago, I moved to Chicago to start seminary. Uh, I wasn't scrambling at that time. I actually had a plan I was going to go to seminary and get a degree, and then I was going to go on and do missions work. At the time, I was also in a relationship. She was also planning to be a missionary. One year into my seminary degree, and the relationship was over. Two years in, and my vision for missionary work through a lot of circumstances and experience had had completely vanished. So there I was, two years into a degree, completely unaware of where God was taking me at that point. It was extremely disorienting, confusing. Uh, I was at a place where uh, 
I didn't really know that many people. I was trying to adjust to all these changes that had taken place in my life. Especially it was hard at a place uh, like Trinity. It's a seminary where there are so many people who have such tremendous talents and they have tremendous vision. And so to be there, wondering what had happened with my direction, uh, it was a very difficult time, very rough. I was scrambling for sure. At times, I was just making pragmatic decisions. I was just trying to figure out how to pay the bills and how to get through that degree. And especially when I thought about what I was going to do once that degree was done, I really had no idea. I was just, all practical solutions were on the table at that point, and I was just scrambling, trying to think through each one of what those options would be. Then during my third year of seminary, God began to show up in ways that are Uh, extremely mysterious, but very, very gracious. At the end of my third year, I started dating Celia. And uh, many of you know her as Obi. Don't worry, that's the same person. Um, We got married last year. At that, about that same time, at the end of my third year, uh, Evanston Bible Fellowship had an opening for an administrator position. And I wasn't sure about a lot of careers that I could do, but I knew that this job would be a good fit for me. And so uh, I took the job, and I've been working for EBF as an administrator since then. It's a job I continue to look forward to doing. So these have been amazing experiences in my life. In the midst of my scrambling, in the midst of my desperation, complete confusion at what was going on, God gave me some real blessings and gave me a chance to breathe a little bit. I still don't know what all the future holds. It's not crystal clear to me. But what is clear is that God has blessed me in some ways and brought me through my own desperation and scrambling to breathe a little bit, to make some rational decisions, more than I could have of just a few years ago. Let me be clear. I don't think that this story means that God always gives us the very solution that we're hoping for. God didn't owe me a wife. God doesn't owe me a crystal clear vision of my future as well. What I'm trying to say is that while we're scrambling, God is still at work. Sometimes at big, unmistakable ways, as has happened for me. But sometimes those ways are not as obvious. Sometimes we may have to look harder for the ways that God is working to deliver us. And sometimes we may just have to cling to Scripture and what it says there. Yet, as followers of Christ, as believers... Regardless of what our current experience is, whether we see it or not, Scripture wants us to know that even in our most desperate scrambling, God is still working to deliver us. Even in our most desperate scrambling, God is still working to deliver us. God was gracious to David in the middle of a life or death scramble. And David learnt, realized something through his experience of Gath that he wrote down in Psalm 34:18. He wrote, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God is a refuge for those who are in desperate situations, who are scrambling in life. And we see Jesus carrying this same desire to be a refuge for scrambling people in the New Testament. Matthew 9:36, he it says this. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus knows our scrambling. He sees us as sheep who are surrounded by danger. And like a shepherd, he wants to step in and take us out of that situation. 
Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 29, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I think Jesus is talking to people who scramble, both in merely irrational ways, but also in ways that are clearly sinful. The Bible mercifully doesn't condemn David for what he does in his scrambling. There's an element of just being a human, facing a desperate situation. We oftentimes do something that maybe isn't the wisest thing. But perhaps you're here this morning and you know that your own scrambling has taken you outside the lines. You know that you've looked for solutions in places that are not worthy of the gospel. Part of the grace of God is for that is that for believers, we can return to the gospel. We can know that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins, including those that we do make while we're in a period of scrambling in our lives. When we stop our scramble, we reflect, we become convicted about those times where we've, we've crossed the line in our scrambling. We can turn to Jesus and find that assurance that he has forgiven us of our sins. Finally, in the New Testament, there's a sense in which our desperation in this life never ends, which I realize not the most encouraging thought. Chapter 8 points of Romans, chap, Romans chapter 8 points out that we, along with the rest of creation, we're groaning. We're waiting for God to end our desperation. Romans 8.23 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, have the, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Perhaps the most difficult thing about all of this is that we're forced to wait for God's ultimate and final deliverance. We don't know when it'll come. Verse 25 of chapter 8 says, but if, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So we know it's coming. We look forward to a time in our lives and, and even beyond where our existence is not filled with such desperate struggles, where we will be fully adopted as sons and daughters and will no longer need to scramble. And the encouraging thought in chapter 8 is that ultimately our periods of desperation and even our scrambling in this life can be worked out for our good. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And let me tell you, when I was scrambling, I got sick of how often that verse came to mind. I had uh, memorized it earlier in life. I'd even counseled other people going through different time, difficult times with that verse. And in my own life, it was such a hard thing at times to just hear that verse. But it's something that we have to be reminded of, both in times when we're not scrambling and in the middle of times when we are scrambling. God can take senseless and desperate times for the believer and make sure that they're not wasted times for them in life. Perhaps this morning you're scrambling. You know that you're lucky just to have made it to church this morning. In fact, for some of you, you know that you didn't make it and you're watching on the live stream this morning. But your situation is so stressful. The thought of going to church, singing some songs, hearing from the Bible, it didn't seem like a very practical or pragmatic solution to the stress and desperation you're feeling, but you're here now. My prayer is that somehow throughout this service, through worshiping, through hearing God's word, 
God has given you a little bit of space to consider how he's delivered you from struggles in the past. That God has given you just the faintest of hints of how God is working to deliver you from your current struggle. For some of you, you know that this morning, as you leave from here, you need to make more time in your life for some cave reflection. You know you're scrambling, but you know you need to take a moment to pause, look at God's word, remember the ways that Christ has delivered you from your sins, first of all, but then look back at different times where Christ has delivered you from past scrambling, perhaps even recently. Wherever you're at this morning, please hear the message that Scripture is speaking to us, even through the strange story of a king who's pretending to be a madman. Even in our most desperate scrambling, God is still working to deliver us. Even in our most desperate scrambling, God is still working to deliver us. Please pray with me. Lord, we praise you that you see our ultimate struggle. Lord, that you realize we're separated from you because of our sin and that there's really no options for us and that, Jesus, you came to do something about that. Lord, you gave your life in order that you could deliver us from our sins. And, Lord, we, we look forward with anticipation the day when uh, our existence won't be so filled with even temporal desperation, Lord. For those here who are scrambling this morning, God, I pray that you would give them space, even over the next few songs as we close our service. Lord, give them space. Give them a chance to remember, Lord, how you've worked in their lives, how you've started a relationship with them through Christ. Lord, how you've delivered them in the past. Lord, I pray that you would give them hope and a chance to trust in you more, even in the midst of more difficult times and more desperation. Lord, please guide us, help us to know how to um, walk with you in the middle of desperate situations in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.